Hello friends! This is People Are Interesting with Jan K. In each episode of this show, unique individuals share stories that take us on a ride across ideas and places. Featuring crocodile attacks in Indonesia, escaping war-torn Lebanon, and shark protection schemes in Mauritania. This podcast takes you where you've never been before. Enjoy and thank you for joining the club. And we're running. Thank you so much for being here. Today we're going to be talking about astrophysics. Maybe we could start by you, you know, just giving two sentences um, about what you do and who you are, because I don't really like introducing my guests because I usually don't do it accurately. <laughs> oh, that's fine. So I'm Francesco. Uh, I'm, um, I'm a PhD student in astrophysics. Um, I'm actually pretty much done with my PhD. I'm writing my thesis now, so it, which is like the um, the weirdest part of your PhD, where like you know you have to sum up like three years of like your life and like what's been your work into like one piece of text. So it's it's like the moment where you're most like critical about your work and also like know most about it. It's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting place to be. Yeah. But um, yeah, so the, I work on uh, I work on. Uh, planet formation so I try to understand um, how well planetary systems came to be right which is actually surprisingly something we don't understand particularly well yet Um, we don't know very much about how earth or the rest of the planets in our solar system uh, ended up looking the way they do and that's what I'm trying to that's that's what we're working to understand got it so that that actually made me think about something I find interesting what areas of astrophysics would you say uh, we have good grasp on and which are completely we are like yes we know nothing about that it's it's hard to say because um you know a lot of things in astrophysics are um well people have been fascinated by the stars for a long time so we've been studying a lot of things for a long time and there's a lot of fields where, you know, we have uh, we have done a lot of study and we're convinced we understand them very well until we go again in more depth. Like, we study them again and we realize that we don't actually really understand them particularly well. Like, for example, uh, everyone was pretty convinced we, we understood, you know, the, the structure of, of other planets quite well. Um, and then every time we send a probe to, to those planets within our own solar system, uh, we realize that we're actually quite wrong. Mm. Um, like for example, most recently, um, there has been a, a mission to Jupiter mm-hmm. called Juno. And um, that mission has been studying well, a lot of things about Jupiter, including what are called its gravitational moments, which is like, sort of like how the, how the gravitational field of the planet looks from it different angles and like mm-hmm. different uh, if you try to like figure out the shape of its gravitational okay field, let's say and from that you can people who know what they're doing uh, which is not me this is well outside my field but you know they they can figure out how the planet is made up on the inside and it turns out that you know we were expecting Jupiter to have like a small a small compact core made of like heavy stuff and then a bunch of gas around it and it turns out that's actually not what it seems to look like it seems really? to be yeah it seems to be like a much larger core like a lot more 
solid materials than we expected. Uh, but at the same time, like it's diffuse. So like there isn't a sharp transition between solid stuff and the the volatiles around like, you know, the gas around it. It's rather like it's like a lot of like solid stuff dissolved in the gases around it. So it's like this diffuse core. Got it. So it's like there isn't a sharp transition between mm -hmm. like like gassy bit or like atmosphere of Jupiter and core of Jupiter, but rather this this gradient, which is quite interesting. Can I ask you? So, is there it, is is this like a graphic picture of the of the of the gravity? You know pattern of a planet how does it how can you see it because you know when they there was this big moment when they showed a, f a photograph of a of a black hole right and it was only like a, r a rim of it or something like that because I, I don't know if you know the case i'm referring to yes uh, i i know exactly i can't uh, the m 49 uh-huh i think that's the name of the black hole. i can't remember m25 motorway m around london is that it? <laughs> yes. Well, actually, that's also black hole, right? Mm. Uh, mm. You can never, you can never get out of it. Yeah. Cross it, but, um, yeah, but that, that's the thing, right? Like you, at least from from the physics that we know, you can't see past the event horizon. Uh, that that's the the point where light just falls into black hole. There's oh, no really? Way. That's yeah, a, that's right. the so, term for it. Yeah, it's called event horizon because physics stopped working at that point. Oh wow. Um, so, of course, we can't see past it because physics doesn't really work there, <laughs> or at least the physics we know. Right. Uh, and light cannot escape, so uh, all we can see is the way that things move around it. And what, you, what we observed, actually, the, the, the rim of the, the black hole, if you want to call it that, is its, it's accretion disk, it's the gas that orbits it. And the thing is, like, it orbits it extremely fast, and when, when things orbit something, um, like when gases, non-solid things orbit um, they tend to shear right they don't orbit as like a solid object like it's not everything is moving at the same speed the things that are closer in are moving faster which means that you get like a lot of friction as you move out because mm -hmm. like every at every point you are something next to you is moving just slightly slower or slightly faster so it's Got like it. a lot of friction and that friction heats up the gas to like unimaginable mm -hmm. temperatures like we're talking millions of degrees mm -hmm. and so it's like super bright in like x-rays and well also radio waves and stuff and that's what we detected like uh, we detected a, a bunch of like light from the accretion disk of the black mm, hole okay and when it comes to um formation of planets do we know how earth was formed uh, how how good is our understanding of this topic um well it's um a hard question because our understanding is relatively good in a sense because we know that at some point there was a disk of gas and dust around the sun and then the dust in in that disk collected mm -hmm. and formed a planet mm -hmm. so on a surface level our understanding is very good but how these things actually happen we don't really understand and the more we look into it uh, the more we just end up with questions really uh, because I mean we don't really have a lot of like concrete observations about what is happening in these disks only recently we've managed to like really get good observations of the disks themselves mm. um, and but, but by that you mean that we looked into space and we saw some 
um, let's say discs that could that ah, right want... okay sorry let, um, I'm skipping many steps here because it's like uh, this is uh, uh, so when stars form uh, you, you form a star by like collapsing a cloud of gas mm -hmm. right gas and dust and stuff and just collapse it down to form a star but most of the stuff doesn't immediately fall onto the star well most of the stuff immediately forms the star but then you're left with a lot of mass that's just orbiting the star. Got it. And it's trying to like accrete into the star gradually, like fall onto the star. Um, this mass of stuff around the star forms a disk. Mm -hmm. And it's within that disk that we form planets. Okay. Um, that, that disk is made up of both gas and dust. And um, it's actually very hard to get the dust in that disk to collect and form planetary cores. So if the disk is like super, super massive, like we're talking very massive stars, then it's possible for that the gas itself in the disk to be like heavy enough to collapse again into another object. Mm -hmm. If it collapses, if it's like a huge amount of mass, it can collapse into like a small other star. Got it. If it's not enough, it can collapse into what is called a brown dwarf, which is like a failed star. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's just not quite massive enough mm -hmm. to like start up a nuclear fusion in the core and or like sustain nuclear fusion in the core. Otherwise, by this process, you can also form very large gas giant, like gas giant planets, things like Jupiter, but mm -hmm. also even larger. Um, but of course, by this process, we cannot form terrestrial planets or even any of the planets we really observe in our solar system. I mean, this is a slightly controversial statement because there has been some studies that claim that you can actually form planets this way, but um, the jury is very much still out. I'm mm -hmm. very skeptical of this claim. Okay. That's, uh, that's an aside. Um, yeah, you know... Um, the, we don't understand the mechanism by which we can collect the dust into planet into like planetary embryos, what we call them, mm -hmm. like the the seeds of uh, of planets. It's it's just a surprisingly hard problem. I think that's the. So, just to clarify my understanding, how those massive disks uh, kind of come to being uh, from which stars are first formed because i understand that you will never have a planet un unless you have the the star right yeah exactly okay uh, you won't uh, you you first so you have areas in in galaxies which are much richer in gas than in the rest of the galaxy and uh, uh, usually called these like star forming regions or like mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and um in, in these regions just like uh, you know you will have like old generations of stars which explode in like supernova and stuff like that and the shocks can sort of like cause enough like change of density for example in the gas for it to start collapsing under gravity okay uh Ducks. listeners we are outdoors we're enjoying outdoors on a cold may day in london so the water birds you're you're graced with water bird sounds as well not only astrophysics yes you don't have to thank us. <laughs> yeah, so... What was I saying? You were saying that uh, there are those areas ah, yes, in the space. Star-forming star regions. There. Yes. Yeah, they, there's just a lot of gas there. And whenever you have like a bit of a denser region, mm -hmm. it tends to collapse under gravity. You know, it's just gravity takes over and <laughs> collapses it. And you form a star. Got and it. then the material that is like got too much like angular momentum to just fall onto the star, ends up forming a disk. Got it. Uh, so you just end up with like a star and like a disk of stuff orbiting around it. 
and then it's within that disk that you can form planets or not form planets as well. I mean, we don't know that every star has planets, and we don't know, well, probably not every star has planets. Oh yeah, but every planet needs to have a star, or not, not even that. Well, you probably need, you, our understanding is that you really need a star to form a planet. But that doesn't mean that every planet in space is orbiting a star. Mm. Um, there's um, plenty of um, there's 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 plenty of planets, most likely. They're flying away. Yes. God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's probably plenty of planets in space just floating around. But are they then called an asteroid, or what's the distinction uh, between no, an asteroid uh, and a planet? Usually, I think they are usually called uh, rogue planets. Um, rogue planets. Yes. Oh. Uh, because they don't, they don't have a, par they aren't orbiting their parent star anymore. Uh, this usually happens because, like, uh, you know, the early formation of uh, planets, of planetary systems, is is like a very violent process, most likely. Mm -hmm. And interactions between planets and their stars and stuff can can throw the planets out into space. Oh wow! Okay. So, you know, like if you're a small planet um, in an orbit close to a massive planet, think Jupiter or something, um, if you get too close, you can just get like thrown out of your planetary system. Mm -hmm. You know, you get one kick and your orbit changes, you get another kick and your orbit changes further, right. and eventually your orbit changes enough that you're no longer bound to the star and right. you're free floating in space. Uh, so you know, there's a good chance that a lot of objects in our solar system met this fate. Mm. You know, our solar system is pretty busy. There's a lot of large planets around. Uh, probably, probably enough to cast a few big rocks into space. Is our solar system in any way unique based on what, what we observe in the space? That's, that's a hard question. Um, uh, so, quite recently, actually, this, this may seem like a weird tangent, but... You're going to have to bear with me. So quite recently, a um, uh, Nobel Prize was awarded for the, dis the first discovery of exoplanets. So this happened, like, the discovery happened in 1992. A uh, certain guy, uh, Didier Kellos, he works in Cambridge now, actually. He's a very interesting guy. But, um, so he, he made the first real observation of an exoplanet. And this exoplanet was like a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting a period of about one day, or less than a day even, um, around its uh, around its host star. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point, wait. Sorry, let me just ask you: What is an exoplanet? Uh, it's a planet. Oh, sorry. It's a planet that's not within our solar system. Oh, right? okay. It's a planet around another star. Okay. So that, that's a uh, sorry. That's a bit of weird jargon that I, I assume that people know but for no reason. Uh, yeah. So an exoplanet is just a catch-all term for any planet that's not a planet within our solar system. Got it. And yeah, so we observed this, um, we observed this exoplanet. And um, yeah, it was orbiting really close to its parent star. And that's just because of the way we were observing, right? We were looking for planets by seeing how the stars move under the, the, the gravity of the, the planet, right? So the planet orbits the star and sort of tugs the star along with it a tiny bit, so it wobbles. And of course, it's always easier to observe very big things very close mm -hmm. because they cause the biggest, most high-frequency wobble. That's like just you look at the you look at the star and you're like, oh, that star's wobbling. That's easy to spot. Yeah. 
So what we ended up with, with was a very big, um, like a very big observation bias, right? We tended to observe things that were big and close. So for a long time, you know, when you, if you asked me, is our solar system typical, I would have said no, because we don't have a big close by thing. Um, as our observation methods changed, and we started using this method called like uh, occultation method, which is like you see when a planet crosses in front of a star, and also our um, radial velocity, which is the wobble method, got more accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started observing other things that were both further away and less mm-hmm. massive. At which point, we started seeing planetary systems with a lot of like larger than Earth size close by planets that often cross in front of the star. And we started realizing that, yeah, in fact, like massive Jupiter sized planets orbiting close to their parent star, not very common in actuality. Mm-hmm. They're just very easy to observe. So our, um, uh, so our observations are like polluted, let's Got say. They're, they're not true like they don't truly represent the statistics because um well of course we're it's more easy to observe a specific thing so we tend to observe much more of that thing um so it's hard to say even today right it's hard to say if our planetary system is characteristic of a planetary system in space because our observations tend to favor planetary systems that are drastically different so things that look like our planetary system, we haven't observed many of. But at the same time, that's really not surprising because um, if you work backwards, right? If you assume that we were aliens mm-hmm. on our closest planetary system, uh, Proxima Centauri, right? Um, and we look towards Earth, would we be able to observe Earth with our current technology? And the answer to that is a no. We, we wouldn't. wouldn't. We wouldn't know that Earth was there. We'd be able to see Jupiter. Um, if we were lucky, we might be able to see the ice giants. Uh, that, that's a bit trickier because their their orbit is so infrequent that we we'd need to get lucky to spot them. Wait, uh, when you say ice giants, you uh, mean the, Uranus? The, uh, yeah, Uranus and Neptune. Okay, and they are uh, ice giants. Uh, just because you? they are big and cold. Oh, so, but that's as in like they are the temperature there is low, or it's yeah, the temperature the temperature is low, and they are. Generally, we, we talk about them as being rich in ices because the temperature is low and they have a lot of like volatiles that are frozen. So like a lot of like, you know, they have a lot of water, a lot of like methane. Oh, really? a lot of, yeah. And all of these things freeze out in these. Oh. But for that matter, also Jupiter has a lot of water. Water is very common in space. But, just Yeah. Because well, recently, I think they were quite excited, correct me if I'm wrong, that they discovered or they are very likely to discover uh, water on Europa, on this moon of, 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 of Jupiter or Saturn, or am I mixing Jupiter. it up? Yes. Uh, as far as I know, as far as I'm, Europa probably has a lot of water. Europa is probably covered in water. Right. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily surprising, because if you think about it, um, well, what's the most... What's the most common atom in space? It's hydrogen. Okay. Uh, the second is helium, but helium doesn't do much of anything. Um, it makes your your voice be very thin if you breathe it, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. So does hydrogen. It's something. Oh, really? it's, it's it's about the the, the, the sound speed, the, the speed of sound through hydrogen uh, and helium. This is faster. Makes versus the, air. Versus air. Yes. Uh-huh, got so it. if you breathe some very heavy gases. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of the gases. It's like very 
very dense gas. It makes your voice really low. It's like really argon high. or something like that? Uh, uh, I think argon is heavier than air, but only slightly. Okay. Um, no, no, it's like some uh, sulfur compound. Mm. It's very, very heavy. Got it. Uh, it's like you can um, you can float like a tinfoil boat on it kind of thing. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. it's, oh, it's wow. really, really cool. Well, have uh, you seen it in the lab? How does it look like? Is it it's transparent? It's transparent. It's, uh, tra but I think it's put, odorless as well. Put... Yes, yeah, so you can fill a tank up with it. And like if you put a boat on it, like a tinfoil boat, it will float. Just wow. Because like the air... <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, are there any like commercial application for those kind of gases? There are actually, but uh, they're also really, really polluting. Mm. Like they're, you know, if you think like uh, the CFCs, the stuff that used to be used in fridges and stuff, it's yeah. like bad for the ozone layer. The stuff yeah, is like yeah. uber bad for oh, the ozone. Oh yeah, I think fair. It used to be used in uh, like the AirPods of Nike air shoes. Really? Because being much heavier it takes much longer to like move through the plastic like mm -hmm. diffuse through the plastic so that they didn't lose pressure as fast oh, something like that also they, it bounces better for some uh, statistical physics reasons it. it bounces much better than 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 air so like if you fill something up with it mm -hmm. um but but yeah so um going back to the previous thing i was saying yeah hydrogen most common thing mm -hmm. Oxygen is like pretty much like the third most common atom in space. So by extension, the most common molecule, like the most common combination after H2, which is like just two hydrogens, God. is H2O. Right. You know, you take like pretty much the two most common things, combine them together, you get water. So it's a logical expectation that water will be quite common in space. And it is. There's a lot of water in space. And you should probably pause because we're gonna oh yeah yeah we're gonna get wet we were talking about water on europa right yeah iron <laughs> exactly what an irony so we were saying that the water isn't is quite common in in universe or in space however yeah. however you want to say it because and you were i think you were getting into the elemental chart and why oh yeah like uh, th that's the thing right it's uh, think it's well it's effectively one of the most common molecules because it's easy to form and there's a lot of the stuff that makes it up right that that's the thing there is relatively a lot of oxygen and definitely a lot of hydrogen in space so you expect water to be quite common in fact it is you know uh, like you know if we look at comets for example there's plenty of water and if we look um, uh, if we look at earth there's plenty of water it's just and also if we look at the exoplanets, uh, there's strong evidence that a lot of them are what we call ocean worlds. They're sort of like Earth, except they're covered in like many kilometer deep oceans. Really? Yeah, just because I said water is quite abundant in space. It's, uh, there's a lot of it around. So if you're making planets, it's, uh, it's an abundant material. And depending on how you end up making the planets, sometimes you'll end up with a lot of water on them. Um, and sort of the same thing goes for Europa, you know, it formed uh, far away from the sun. So um, the water isn't all vaporized, formed around, around Jupiter, which is far away from the sun. And there is a lot of water at that distance from the sun because there's a lot of ice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we expect there to be a lot of water in many different forms uh, out around those, uh, 
those far further away orbits. But the problem, of course, is is the water liquid? Because yeah, we're pretty sure there's a lot of water on Europa, but if there's just a bunch of ice, that's, that's not very useful if you're looking for life, right? That, that's why it, liquid water is exciting because life, as we understand it, likes liquid water to form, to 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 come about. And Europa might be a good place um, because it's uh, heated from the inside. What do you mean? Well, that's the thing, right? So there isn't enough sunlight out at Europa to melt the ice or to like make the temperature on the surface high enough for there to be liquid water. Um, in theory, there, there isn't really enough at Earth's orbit either. But because we have an atmosphere that keeps us warm. It's raining. Yes. I just felt that. You um, felt that too, right? Okay, let's, let's see what happens. Um, yeah. Put the lid as close as you can. And okay. Let's see how this goes. Um, I already know it's not going to go well. <laughs> Damn it. It's uh it's making fun of us. Yeah. Water is quite common in on Europa and it's a prerequisite for life as we know it. Yeah, yeah. Like you need water to get like earth earth like life, right? We don't know like life is probably possibly, right? More resistant and like more uh, more resistant than, than we think. We always uh, we always assume that it's going to look like earth. There's are no there, reason for us to believe that. Are there other theories that uh, of, of, you know, that life yeah. might be kind of be exist in different, how would you call it, like environments? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, right? Like, uh, it, this is a big question. This is like one of those like essential, fundamental questions. It's like, oh, does, does life need to look like life on Earth? I, that's definitely above my pay grade to even try to answer um, that, that that's a big i think it's even a big question in biology right like what do you need to have life um but yeah like if, if you have the same conditions as earth then it, it might be fair to assume that it's possible to have life and europa might have similar conditions in some ways because because of the way it orbits jupiter um and you know jupiter being much more massive than earth is um, the tides on Europa are uh, quite dramatic. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, enough to keep the... Well, enough, I think. Hopefully, enough to keep the core of the planet hot. Or the core of the moon hot. Um, hot enough to, to have liquid water, right? So instead of being heated by the sun, you're heated by, by the tides. So you're heated from the middle instead of from the outside. Which is, which is interesting, right? And there's a lot of theories of how life formed on Earth. And one of those theories is that it formed around like geothermal vents in oh, the ocean. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of, you know, if that's how life formed on Earth and those are the, the conditions we have on Europa, then maybe Europa is a pretty good place to look for, for life. And I mean, I think that's sort of been the consensus in, in like planetary sciences for a while now. Like I know in, in the media, like life on Mars is like a big topic. But um, the scientific community, you know, it's all about life on like Europa or Enceladus. Like the moons around massive planets are very promising for life, for the search for life. Is it anything particular about the moons around big planets? Um, it's nothing in particular specifically about the moons, right? But it's just that uh, they, because of this tidal heating, uh, you need a bigger planet to like drive a good amount of tidal heating. Um, and so if you're looking for life on a moon, either it has to be close to the sun, 
but then it's hard to keep an atmosphere because the moons are quite small so like the atmospheres blow away very quickly um, so you know if you're looking for close to the Sun you need a planet so like Earth or like Mars or like Venus and I'll probably get to that in a sec because that's that's another interesting develop recent development but if you're looking for life further away moons are very good because again they're heated from tides so you don't need to worry about holding on to an atmosphere so much and also they're further from the sun so it's harder for the atmosphere to get blown away um, so yeah you're more likely to find things that are possibly hospitable to life maybe but again you know we don't really know what life outside of earth looks like we only have we have a sample of one uh, so it's hard to say you know like this is where we expect life in fact um, Quite recently, you know, in our search for things that are potentially biomarkers, um, people have come up with this biomarker called uh, phosphine. Uh, it's um, sorry, what is a biomarker? Um, oh right, yes, sorry. Uh, I, sometimes I use terms that like we we take as a given but aren't. A uh, biomarker is like a molecule that you can observe, you know, in like an atmosphere of an exoplanet or of a planet, and um, be pretty certain that it's caused by life you know there's um, there's specific molecules or specific combinations of molecules that don't really form in nature unless you have biological processes taking place uh, this this molecule phosphine um, can form uh, you know it can be formed by like volcanoes in small amounts but also you know there's a lot of it in jupiter for example because there's very high pressure uh, but as soon as the pressures get lower um, it's very hard to form and it breaks down very quickly as well so you need like a considerable source of it to be able to detect it um, and um, yeah astrophysicists were astronomers really were looking at uh, planets in our solar system and um, they saw phosphine in on Venus uh, you know the the planet that is renowned for being very inhospitable to life is that at the surface is the hottest planet in our in our solar system what's the potential explanation for that well the people that observed it um, are very adamant that uh, there is no known explanation other than life really uh, yeah it's it's actually kind of interesting I mean we still don't know if the observation how robust the observation is there's been a lot of back and forth in the scientific community about uh, how much we can trust this observation um, which actually I think is kind of uh, it's kind of worrying the fact that like you know Venus is like pretty much the closest planet to us Venus and Mars are the closest planets to us and even then we can't be we we're having trouble being sure about whether our observation of like a molecule in the atmosphere is reliable uh, which is kind of scary for the prospect of like you know if we're gonna observe anything in exoplanets how are we gonna trust those observations that we can't trust observations of something on Venus but anyway that's that's sort of an aside um, yeah and the, the the only explanation if these uh, if these observations are are to be trusted um, which you know they probably are to some extent the only explanation is either there is life on Venus somehow and you know there's been a few potential ways in which that could happen or there's 
you know, other ways to form phosphine that we aren't aware of, and that's chemically interesting. You know, chemists have like missed something important or something. Um, on the life side, like on the life side, uh, what the explanation that was brought forward is that you know there is some kind of like bacterial life or something, um, and uh, you know, phosphine, in at least from our understanding, only forms in um, anaerobic life, so like life that goes on without oxygen. Um, there's a lot of it at, at the South Pole, for example, from uh, <laughs> from penguins' intestines. So it's like we get a lot of phosphine from some bacteria that live in the intestines of penguins, so we can detect it in like their poop. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And the idea is that there's like um, like bacteria and like bacterial spores that float on the clouds of Venus, where the temperature isn't too hot and it isn't too acidic, because the the, the the environment on that. On Venus is ridiculous. It's like it's like 500 degrees centigrade, and there is like constant sulfuric acid rain. You know that's that's not exactly the place you'd want to live. Um, wow. So, uh, so yeah. The I actually on this point I was I I read the other day that there quite soon is gonna there's gonna be a bunch of new telescopes like a new generation of telescopes and. The purpose behind them will be to look for the biomarkers that you've mentioned on the on exoplanets. Yeah, um, hopefully, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of new exciting stuff that's seeing first light, which is the uh, the term that we use, I guess, for opening a telescope. Like the first light is when you. Uh, so you know, if you look on Wikipedia, and the, um, they, they will have you know date of first light uh, first light which is like the projected opening date of the telescope the projected first observation oh yeah uh, there's a few different kinds of uh, exciting new telescopes so there's uh well there's james webb space telescope which is i guess a big deal it's been in it's been in planning for ages it's been meant to replace hubble space, space telescope for <laughs> decades now it's been very delayed. I think NASA was maybe a bit too ambitious with what they planned. Like all the technology didn't exist when they were like, when they decided to make it. It's like one of those big decadal projects ended up being delayed by a decade. I think more than a decade maybe. Um, and uh, it's um, an infrared telescope, so it's going to be observing at different, at lower wavelengths. Um, which is very good for a lot of biomarkers like uh, a lot of bio like a lot of these molecules have um, characteristic emissions and absorptions in the infrared range and like being able to observe in that infrared range is very important um, but of course it presents a huge amount of challenges you have to like thermally isolate the telescope it's, it's, it's really really difficult um, and that's why James Webb has been so delayed because it's such a challenging project and then we have a bunch of Earth-based telescopes that are super exciting. Um, I mean, there's the um, uh, there's the GMT, I think it's called, which is no the GMT or TMT, yeah TMT, thirty meter telescope, mm -hmm. uh, supposed to be built on Mauna Kea. That's a whole political issue. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't want to go on either side of that issue. Like Wait, what, a, what, what's the background? Uh, it's because like, it's indigenous lands. Oh, and, I see. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a big issue. Where it's is it? In Hawaii. Oh, on, okay. On uh, Mauna Kea, which is, is the highest mountain in Hawaii. 
Uh, There's no light pollution there, right? No light pollution. It's quite high, so the seeing is reasonably good. Like the quality of see of the the quality of observations would be reasonably good because there's less weather in the way. Yeah. Um, and also it's in the northern hemisphere, which is a big deal because we have very few good telescopes in the northern hemisphere. Um, what's the difference? What's that in terms of observation advantage of, or what are the advantages and disadvantages of? telescopes placed in space like the Hubble telescopes versus the ones <laughs> on the ground. The big advantage of something in space is that you have no atmosphere to look through. Atmosphere is difficult per partly because you know if you're looking for um, things emitted like absorption lines from gases and stuff like that you first need to account for the ones in the atmosphere which is uh, you know our atmosphere has a bunch of biomarkers because right you know and it's hard to distinguish what is from what is caused by Earth and what is like what's caused by our atmosphere and what is actually coming from outside, and then it's hard to account for like the oscillations in the atmosphere, you know, from like the the pollution and the observations from light being refracted within the atmosphere. Yeah. That's very difficult. There is this method called adaptive optics, where you like bend a mirror to account for them, and mm. like you know you like. Have like laser beams in space and well in space uh, you th you shoot laser beams through the atmosphere to like get an idea of the turbulence and then you try to account for it uh, it's a really complex field i don't really understand how it works it kind of blows my mind but with adaptive optics you can get really crisp images through the atmosphere and that's like all large telescopes now have to use adaptive optics because otherwise you're very limited in the quality of observations that you can make. Um, so this, um, this, the TMP in on Hawaii, in Hawaii would would be uh, one of these like large, super large telescopes. But even more exciting to me, at least, is the ELT uh, or EELT, which is being built in uh, Chile. It the large at the in the Hayat Kama Desert. It's like at 5,000 meters altitude, amazing quality of seeing, and, and it's in a desert as well. It's like dry the air. highest altitude desert on Earth. It's, mm. it's amazing, like super dry air, never rains. Like it has, I think uh, the Atacama Desert hasn't seen like a drop of rain in like 5,000 years or something yeah. ridiculous oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow, Yeah, yeah it's, it's insane. Um, honestly, like out of places I want to go, I, I you know, That's in my lifetime, there. I'd love to see the Atacama Desert. Really? It's one of those, like, um, yeah, one of my colleagues, she uh, she left science, she left academia now, she's a postdoc, and uh, she worked on um, ALMA, which is um, the, um, the uh, large millimeter array in, um, in the Atacama Desert in Chile. It's and another it's, telescope. It's another telescope. Okay. It's a kind of different kind of telescope because it's made up of a, like a bunch of antennas and they see in like the very in the far infrared so like very low frequency stuff and even like sort of into the uh, into the microwave range like range that kind of frequencies and um, it's a super high like super cool telescope in many many ways um, and that's also up in the Atacama Desert and she's been up there. She is from Chile as well. So very very cool place um, i really want to go but uh, and yeah the the telescope opening there the um, elt is like will be the largest telescope on earth 
well, the largest telescope that we've ever built, period, or optical telescope, highest resolution out of anything, and that would really change the way we observe, like, uh, protoplanetary disks, like the disks around young stars. There's like a lot of time cut out for the observations of uh, forming stars and of course forming planets by extension. And I think that will really change our field because we're very limited now. I, uh, that actually perfectly leads to my question. What uh, are each of those telescopes purpose built for specific tasks or they are very broad in what they can do? How, how do you kind of approach? Well, this is, um, you know, each, uh, each community in astrophysics, I think, would love to have a telescope built to their specifications. But uh, realistically, you know, that, that's, not, that, that's not really ever going to happen in many ways. There's thing, there's like, um, there's tools that have been built for specific purposes, but these tend to be quite a bit smaller. Like, for example, uh, the Kepler teles Space Telescope. Um, which is uh, really the tool that we've used to observe the largest amount of exoplanets, which is the, it's a telescope that just looks at stars and looks at their brightness and tries to observe planets crossing in front of them. Um, it, it was up in space for a very long time. It observed like thousands of exoplanets. And, uh, you know, that was built for exoplanet hunting, effectively. Like that was its That was its purpose. It, it also got used for other things, you know, like observing, like, stars and like the the brightness patterns and stars and stuff but like you know it was purpose built but if you want something like super super high tech like james webb space telescope or like the elt on earth um you end up having huge collaborations like a huge um not even collaborations in the right word um yeah like it's international collaborations with like space agencies and like telescope agencies and like like you have, uh, you will have a European Space Agency and uh, the European Southern Telescope, uh, Southern Observatory, all like getting together to to pull the funding together. And when you do something like that, you want to make the most of it. So you try to build something as general purpose as possible. So you know the ELT will not just be observing forming stars; it will be. It will be observing a bunch of stuff. It will be looking for life in space. It will be, yeah, it will be doing like cosmological observations for cosmologists. So it, it's going to be doing like a broader range of stuff. Got it. Um, the same, the same goes for like this other telescope that's being built in South Africa. It's called the SKA, um, uh, Square Kilometer Array. That's what it stands for. It's a radio telescope in uh, that's being built in South Africa, and. Um, it aims to, well, produce some of the highest quality cosmological observations that we ever have had. And also it aims to look for like biomarkers and stuff like that in protoplanetary disks. Um, and these huge projects are only possible through collaborating with people in different fields because, uh, you know, I, I wish that governments would spend more money on science and less money on frugal stuff. But even then, you know, honestly, I think there are more higher priority things than astrophysics. You know, if uh, if I were to allocate funds, yeah, of course, I'd want funds to be allocated to astrophysics just because it's interesting, you know, like science is science. And I think it's worth pursuing kind of regardless. But there's also like a lot of aspects of science which directly help people's lives, you know, like 
there's a lot to be studied in medicine still and like cancer research and stuff and of course that kind of stuff has to get priority and then you know uh, a lot of governments see it that like uh, a lot of like military stuff gets priority as well and you want uh, that nukes I mean, ready <laughs> hmm? you wanted that nukes ready what can i what can i say i i i i, I mean are you it's your podcast i don't want to get political so <laughs> uh, I, you can get political i don't mind uh, no, I mean, I don't think that's a, that, that's the best way to spend money, personally. Uh, you know, I, I understand that, like, we've gotten to this point now and um, um, sort of, like, yeah, keeping peace is now somehow about, like, everyone being scared of each other. Uh, but um, I think that's a very unstable kind of peace. Uh, there's, there's, like, very far to fall. Yeah, because we're fucking dangerous. apes, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're like sticks and stones, just we have better weapons now, but essentially we're, you know, like the same like uh, animal instincts are, you know, driving us fear, intimidation, threat, like we're still like operating very much on that level. And so it like makes perfect sense that people like have nukes because like we, we still like speak language of like power, I think, Yeah. as, a huma as humanity yeah, goes. Yeah, I like to believe that maybe we we've sort of we're better than that but um i think i always get proved wrong so that's you think so yeah actually one one more thing that i find quite interesting is when it comes to how the planets and stars are created are there certain patterns or is there just one universal way though in which it works well it's hard to say right because we don't really know how planets are created so that's a big uh, we don't know how planets form so uh, it's hard to say, you know, like this kind of planet forms this way because we don't know. Um, we understand star formation a bit better, but even even then, right? Like we know material collapses and forms stars. Depending on how much material you've got around, you're gonna get different size stars. Past that, I mean, yeah, that's. That's, that's what we know. We don't know what goes on, though, during the formation of a star to very high precision. But, of course, I'm not a stellar physicist, so I don't... I'm not really familiar... I'm not really that familiar with how well we understand the processes that take place during star formation. I am much more interested with the period of time after the stars have already formed. And I mean, actually... <laughs> sorry, this sounds like... This sounds really this sounds really strange maybe and like to, to people who aren't uh, in science you know like there isn't such a clear distinction between planet formation and star formation you know like the field sounds so similar and yet if for for a lot of people in science there's you know we we work on like a specific niche and like you know sometimes it's like fun to do like vanity projects outside of that niche but like realistically you end up being like hyper specialized uh, on like something that you know you and another hundred people around the world care about and like uh, you know even it's even worse than 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 what i'm depicting here right it's not just like oh i care about planet formation or star formation like no like my work consists of like writing simulation like computer simulations to study the way dust moves in protoplanetary disks 
it's extremely specific and in practice that's sort of like at this point is sort of the only way to make progress because like we don't have enough time really to like know have like a huge breadth of like a huge width of knowledge that's also very deep just because I, I don't I mean there's people who do but those people are rare rare to find and like they're like the wise old people in, in academia who've had like enough time to like dive in depth in like a lot of different fields and sort of connect them together um, and um, yeah I mean. and in terms of scientific community you your let's say scientific circle what are your thoughts on life outside of earth for example recently there was this talk about this really flat object that crossed you know our solar system ah, yeah yeah what do you think about that what do people that you know you talk to what do they think about that and generally speaking so i would say that this is maybe just a symptom of of a bigger you know issue which is like life outside earth what do you think about that so i mean there's uh, all sorts of, uh, this is purely speculation right we were this is a uh, we don't scientifically know anything we haven't we don't have any observations or any like hard data to go on my personal opinion is that you know um, I'm very much um, yeah I'm, I'm very much a believer in like some kind of like statistics I guess so you know if we are here now most likely we are not that special right there's probably other civilizations more or less at our level of development elsewhere in the universe probably not very close because otherwise we would have kind of spotted it we are kind of easy to spot now i think if you know what you're looking for we are relatively easy to spot how far do you think a civilization like us would have to be from us for us not to be able to spot them even within our galaxy, um, you know, we've only been emitting like a huge amount of like radio waves and stuff for less than a hundred years. We've been polluting our atmosphere for more than that. So, you know, if you're if you're good at like looking at um, uh, if you if you have like a civilization a bit more advanced than our own with like very good telescopes and stuff like that, uh, you could probably look at Earth from quite far away and be like, oh yeah, that, that, that planet is polluted. Um, but, you know, we haven't been polluting for that long. Uh, you could guess that Earth has life on it, probably, if you could observe it, and you could observe its atmosphere. Like, the combination of gases that are in our atmosphere are quite indicative of life. You know, it's mm -hmm. an atmosphere full of oxygen is, I wouldn't say impossible, but is very unlikely if you don't have life. Um, an atmosphere full of oxygen with some methane and like a bunch of like trace biomarker elements that's bordering on impossible without life so that's the big uh, that's the big thing right like if you're an alien civilization you look at earth you're like ah, there's probably life there if you're advanced enough and you're looking at the right time um, because again as I said you know we've only been producing radio waves and like signs of civilization for a short time um, yeah, if you're at the right place at the right time, you could look at Earth and be like, ah, yeah, there's probably some kind of intelligent life there. They, they're emitting radio waves in a way that we wouldn't really expect randomly from a planet. 
uh, and um, they've polluted their atmosphere. So, you know, if I were an alien civilization looking at Earth, I'd be like, ah, yeah, they're like, they're developed enough to, to know to be industrialized, but not developed enough to do something about the fact that they're destroying their own ecosystem, right? Right. Uh, it's like, so we're at that, that weird limbo where if we don't, we don't develop fast enough, we're probably going to wipe ourselves out. Um, and that's that's probably an issue, right? Like, it's possible that that intelligent life or like civilization is um, is self uh, self annihilating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, civilization happens maybe often in the universe, but is it very transient? Like it, it appears and then disappears within what's relatively a flash within like the lifetime of the planet. You know, like, civilization wipes itself out long before it manages to, to really make a mark, to really, like, be easily detectable. So that maybe that's why we haven't detected civilizations yet, just because they're so unstable. Mm, okay, fair. Um, I don't know. Definitely, in my opinion, Oumuamua is interesting, extremely interesting. Oh, really? But not the sign of extraterrestrial life. I mean, I know there's been, like, a lot of theories about it being, like... A, broken light sail and i mean why can can you do you understand what's the argument for it being a light sail because it had a weird acceleration pattern when it was leaving the solar system uh but realistically uh that's that's just a bad understanding on our side of the shape it was um i don't think it's that interesting. like I don't think the spurious acceleration was that exciting it probably had some more gas in it than we thought it had and like that boiling off due to the Sun accelerated it or something like that if it was a light sail it was a very bad light sail um, so I, I really don't think an intelligent civilization that's sending uh, you know things into deep space uh, is um, building things that we can look at with our engineering and be like that's pretty poor engineering oh yeah you know like it's it's an interesting object also because you know it's really the first object that we've observed that we know came from outside our solar system and realistically you know there's probably a lot of things that come outside from outside our solar system because just recent uh, just within the same year we also observed another uh, comet i can't remember the name to save my life now um, Borisov? Yes, Borisov, I think it was called. And um, that was also from outside our solar system. So actually, most likely, things cross our solar system from deep space quite often. Uh, there's a bunch of chunks of garbage, well, garbage, like remnants of planet formation have been thrown outside their own system, just floating around in space, and they cross our solar system quite often, and we just didn't have the technology to, to observe them and to spot them and we didn't have enough telescopes just constantly pointing at the sky to realize this was happening. Now we do and we realize that there's a lot of random stuff in space and that like the frequency with which they cross can tell us something very important about how planets form and like how much material gets like thrown out of systems when they form. Um, it can tell us many things and it can also tell us about like you know the um, the composition of like forming planetary systems 
but I wouldn't say it's a, it's a sign of intelligence. Got it. That's I think that's my. So would you say that the recent discovery on Venus should be is is way? Because I feel like the Omuamua or however it's you know called mm-hmm. it sounds like a you know like an African tribe or something rather than um, that, than a name name of a of an of of an extraterrestrial thing but what i'm what i'm aiming um, at yeah it's a, it's a, it's named after um it, i think it's it's actually a um, native hawaiian name oh really I'm pretty sure yeah i could swear it is because uh, it's um it, it means something like traveler or something ah, okay um, so do you think the the venus thing that's more let's say promising in terms of looking for extraterrestrial life than than this object well the, i think Oumuamua was an interesting snippet into what's going on outside our solar system but it was just that you know we observed once it slid past our solar system extremely fast we managed to get a few observations of it and that's it um it's gone now you know we can't see it anymore we can barely see it anymore i don't think we can see it at all anymore to be honest even Fair. with the highest resolution telescopes um no, for sure we can't. Just, uh, but um, the potential life on Venus thing—that's first search for life. That's that's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of talk now. I think of uh, organizing a mission to Venus because we because have. Because of that. Yeah, I mean that's pretty exciting. And also there's a lot of talk of missions to Europa, which is also very exciting. So you know, if we're looking, if we were trying to understand life in the universe uh, I think the first step is understanding life in our solar system uh, probably also life on earth which we we understand quite well but really not not that well you know right there's a lot about life on earth on earth that we don't understand I think we, like correct me if I'm wrong but like uh, the best understanding of like we seem to understand it in, in an outline right there was like a concoction of ke- chemicals in like a in an ocean at some point like triggered formation of life i think feel like that's our explanation of it it's not very detail heavy oh yeah no right we don't we don't know how life uh, formed on on earth right we, we don't but um we 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 can't have a vague idea of how life can form right it's just like some chemical process formed life but um but even like the life that exists on Earth, I don't think we understand super well. Like that exists right now. Like right. what kinds of life are possible? I think we don't really understand. Uh, I mean, probably biologists are gonna shout at me for nah. saying this. You know, they, they they definitely know better. That's that's their field. But I think life is still like still surprises us sometimes. It's like we find it in places that we don't expect, and um, I think that's. Uh, that's a that, that's a sign that maybe you know we need to understand life on earth and life in our solar system if there is any other life in our solar system before we can really start thinking about what life outside of our solar system looks like even though you know realistically um it should again it should look similar uh, because um, the, the the reason i think the reason that life looks the way it is, it does not, I don't mean like on a people and like 
trees sense, but like a chemical, on a, in a chemical sense, uh, is because of the way chemistry works, right? Like uh, life, the, the chemistry of life is dictated by the laws of chemistry. Um, and carbon is just, you know, a good way to make life. It's like carbon is just like the most, uh, has the most complex chemistry of any other element. And that's why, like, complex and stable, like, surprisingly so. Like, it's amazing to me. It's amazing, like, the things that carbon can make. Uh, all of, and that's that's I think why life is carbon based because mm -hmm. carbon is common, and it also has very interesting chemistry, and it allows for complex things to, have, to, to form. Fair. And I think my last question before we close is. Based on, you know, what you know about formation of stars and planets, what do you think is going to happen to Earth and our solar system? In you know, what's the like the time frame and what's the event? <laughs> well, that's a that's a hard question. Or like, there's like many many timescales, like many orders of magnitude, right? Um, in the short term, I mean, um, if you think about um, uh, the called Bayesian probability, um, we expect uh, you know we expect civilization to be around more or less as long as it has already been around, right? That's it. Well, usually the the best guess is like if something's been around for a certain amount of time. Right. Uh, the the most likely thing is that you're in the middle of that time, not at the very start or at the very end, mm -hmm. just because it's unlikely for you to be <laughs> in a, at a very important specific time. So you know, most likely you're somewhere in the middle of how long civilization will exist for. Uh, of course, it's <laughs> contentious way to think about it, but um, you know, most likely. You know, we expect civilization to probably be around at least as long as it's already been around. It, it'd be surprising if we were around at the end of civilization. Uh, if we don't do something, um, global warming will make the Earth look quite different than it looks now, but not different than it's ever looked. You know, the Earth has before had a huge amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, there have been periods in the Earth's history when the South Pole was a moderate like a temperate rainforest kind of environment and you know i guess we are pushing the earth back into that direction which is a terrifying thought of course but um but it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be crazy a crazy change for earth uh, life will probably survive humanity maybe not probably not but life will probably survive um then after that What's going to happen is uh, we, we possibly have a lot more certainty of what's going to happen after. Uh, over the next five billion years, more or less, the sun is going to get hotter, uh, grow, turn into a red giant. Um, it will most likely grow to encompass Earth. Like The sun will probably be as large as Earth's orbit. So um, Earth will probably not survive. Or if it does, like it will be very stripped. Like the surface of Earth will be very stripped. 
Um, and um, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the end of the earth, and then the sun will blow off its outer, uh, its outer, uh, its outer layers, and be left as a white dwarf, and the rest of the universe will be none the wiser. Uh, of course, eventually, at some point, the the universe will cease to well exist in the way that we know as well. But that's that's a very long time down the line. Wait, because um, the universe they are dating it for around 12, 13 billion years. Thirteen point something billion. Years, right. Yes. So one would say that five billion years is actually pretty long. Uh, time scale for the universe and so the stars yeah. are pretty are they kind of like a f bil important building blocks of the universe because they from what you're saying they, they've been around for quite they must be around for quite long or or it actually depends on the star well it depends on the star oh, okay. um, so the, the very first stars formed um, only a few hundred million years uh, after the universe formed um, I think it's a few hundred million years entirely sure but yeah I think it's, it's something something around uh, along those lines um, maybe one billion years after the universe formed, but I think less than that and some stars are extremely old like the thing is that the st a stars life cycle is dictated pretty much entirely by its mass uh, very big stars um, burn extremely bright um, the fusion in their cores is very fast because there's like a lot of gravity a lot of pressure mm -hmm. and um, these stars like um, in, in they, they only live a few hundred million years a billion years and then they they spectacularly blow out right you get uh, they're small enough uh, you know will blow out will explode in a supernova and leave behind a black hole or a neutron star if they're even larger you know they'll they'll explode in spectacular supernova explosions and leaving behind not even a black hole they're they're too the the, the explosion is too violent for the cores to collapse into a black hole it's kind of crazy I wait so know how it works but so the 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 standard pattern is for this for a star to explode into a supernova and create a black hole well yeah pretty much like for larger stars for okay what is called is our star. sun a large star no oh, okay our star is a medium our sun is a medium-sized star um, oh, that's why it's that's, not gonna explode into a supernova what, and turn yes, into and a that's black why, hole. And that's why it's black hole or a neutron star, depending on the size of the of the star. How are the two different? Uh, a neutron star is just not quite massive enough to be a black hole. So, um, when um, when fusion inside a star ends, there is nothing to balance out the gravity anymore. So the core starts to collapse, um, and um, depending on the mass. Um, you know, for our sun, what's gonna happen is like fusion ends, and then everything collapses. Everything collapses, and the thing is, uh, physics doesn't like you know, two electrons to be in the same place at the same time. So that causes like some inherent pressure, um, and everything's gonna collapse up to the point that the electrons stop it from collapsing, right? Because they're pushing away from each other. And so our sun is gonna collapse up to that point um, and then stop because there isn't enough mass for it to collapse further. Uh, in other cases, 
there's much more mass and the electrons will collapse into the will get pushed into the into the nucleus of the atoms and the nuclei themselves will collapse into just neutrons because the, you can pack neutrons more closely together and that's how you form a neutron star okay uh, of course if they're even more massive even the even the pressure of the neutrons pushing against each other will not be enough to to stop the star from collapsing and that's when you get a black hole um, you just collapse you keep on collapsing and got it you fall and you become a singularity right that's the that's the idea of what happens and you get an event horizon and all of that fun stuff um, that's not going to happen to our sun because our our sun is not very big in the grand scheme of things and that's the thing right like our sun is going to grow into a red giant at some point and, and blow off its envelope and become a white dwarf which is like a very it's like just the core that's left over and it's extremely hot because it was you know there was fusion going on there and it was the core of the, of the sun so it, it glows extremely bright that's why it's white uh, and eventually you know it will cool off over billions of years but the thing is, like the larger a star is, the, the less the less its life cycle is. Very large stars will, you know, within hundred million years, will have gone through their whole life um, and explode into supernova. Medium-sized stars like our sun, they have lifetimes. You know, you can expect them to live up to ten billion years. Like our sun has been around, I think, already like about four billion years, um, five even, and it will probably live about as long as it's already lived very long amount of time. Um, red dwarves, which are even smaller stars, um, they can survive tens of billions of years. You know, there's, I think we, we have observed red dwarf stars that are nearly as old as the universe itself. They've just been around forever, well, forever. That's a big term, but the, I think the oldest one we've observed is more or less 10 billion years old. Right, so it's predates uh, it predates a lot of like <laughs> predates pretty much everything we see in the universe. You know, it was there, it, it formed like along with like the galaxies forming and stuff. It's kind of crazy. What's the reason for the decompression of sun after the nuclear fusion in, in its core runs out? Why why does it turn into this red giant that you were well, talking about? Um, so what happens is that. So currently, this, the the sun is in what is called the main cycle, and the energy is produced by like different fusion processes. Um, a lot of them involving hydrogen. Uh, after after you're done with all the hydrogen, uh, then fusion kind of stops and the core collapses, and that heats it up a lot, allowing for different fusion processes to take place. So you can start fusing things into carbon uh, into carbon instead of uh, instead of helium and um, that produces a lot more heat right you get well produces a new wave of heat that like expands the outer layers and um, if you know if the star is massive enough once that stops as well then you get further and further fusion until you get iron uh, iron uh, iron is uh, the point at which fusion is no longer uh, energy it no longer outputs energy. You know, if you fuse two ion nucleons, you don't get any energy out. And at that point, fusion stops, right? Because you're not getting any energy out. And yeah, maybe you might be fusing some ion nuclei because of the temperature and the pressure, but 
you're not releasing any more energy to balance out gravity. And at that point, the star collapses and you get a supernova. Oh, supernova is okay. like, uh, supernova is kind of crazy, right? Because it's not, stars are like constantly exploding balls of gas, right? But like gravity holds them together. What happens in a supernova is that the ball of gas stops exploding and like supporting itself. So the outer layers just like kind of fall in and they bounce. And that's the explosion. It's like everything collapsing in very fast and like causing huge amounts of heat and like unimaginable amounts of heat. And that blows off the, the outer layers. But because sun is not big enough, that's not going to happen. Exactly. Okay. So, so essentially it's going to expand because it's not going to be one rapid explosion where it throws everything around it's yeah the the, the fusion is gonna the fusion is gonna stop more gradually and it's not gonna reach iron so the the, the essential reason for that is the, the, the gravity will stop holding sun together and that's like the density of sun will get less that's why it's gonna become bigger or um no it's just the heat is gonna increase in the core produced by the core which is gonna blow it blow it like make it larger turn it into a red giant um and then as time goes on the outer layers of the red giant get blown away get blown away by like all the x-rays and like, stuff produced in the core got it and it forms like a nebula mm-hmm um, and um, I think like the oh no the crab nebula was formed by supernova I think. but like there's nebula in space that you can absorb observe with the telescopes that um, that were formed by like you know red giants blowing off their outer layers uh, and it's uh, it's not like super exciting you know it just like gradually blows off all the outer layers the stellar winds blow off the outer layers and you're left with like a hot dense core um, which is just you know, it's it's tiny. It doesn't have the mass to do anything interesting anymore. But it's still extremely hot just because of all the fusion that was going on. Nothing's going on anymore. It's like a huge ball of carbon, usually. Mainly carbon. And uh, it's just super hot. And it's emitting a bunch of x-rays and a bunch of light. But it's really tiny, so it's not enough to heat anything. Really. Wait, I'm just dying to ask this last question. Is there yeah. some sort of astral recycling going on after that? What What's going to go? Because... Well, yeah, I think um, I think it's uh, Carl Sagan who would say this, and it's like uh, we are all made of star stuff, and that's that's kind of true, uh, because everything that we see, like you know, all of the bigger mon all of the bigger atoms that we see were formed in in dying stars. Um, the fusion in dying stars is what formed you know carbon and the, all the heavier elements that we see. Um, even actually even more more interesting quite recently discovered uh, that a lot of the even heavier elements so like gold and uranium was was not even formed in supernova but rather was formed in what's called a kilonova which is the collision between two neutron stars whoa um, and we observed the very first one a few years ago a couple of years ago um, using the LIGO observatory which like observes gravitational waves and then we saw the signature of two neutron stars merging and then we also saw that with the telescope uh, kind of crazy that like we can do that uh, but yeah so all of the things we see all the dust in space is formed in stars and then when stars die they blow it off and 
Uh, and then it gets incorporated into the next generation of stars and forms planets and all that stuff. Okay, I see how... Okay, that makes perfect sense. Okay, I think this is gonna be... We're gonna, we're gonna call it a day. Yeah, sure. I wanna thank you very much for... No problem. ...explaining all this wonderful and amazing stuff. Um, I think I, I feel a little bit less ignorant now than I, than I felt an hour ago, <laughs> thanks to you. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, most of the time it's just like, it's just the chat, right? Exactly. Um, thank a lot you. of the stuff I don't know either. So. Yeah, no, but thank you very much. And um, see you soon to those who listen to this amazing podcast. Okay. <laughs> thanks.